Here we are, right now, with another day, with more words to share, with another conversation. Today I'd like to talk about levels of not knowing. And I've got about seven or so different levels. And maybe also if we have time, we can talk a little bit about not needing. So not knowing and not needing have a kind of correlation. And what else can I say? What can we do for some small talk before we launch into it? Well, I feel like I don't know when this day is going to (laughs) end. That's one thing I don't know. And maybe you'll see what kind of not knowing that is as we talk about the seven levels of not knowing. (laughs) And I'm sort of feeling this because today where I am, the weather is overcast. So it's sort of just this blanket cloud, which means that you don't get the sort of gradual sun rising and the sun moving across the sky like you normally do, which considering my position in the house that I'm in at the moment, it's actually quite dramatic because you really see the sun on one side of the sky and then on the opposite in the afternoon where I am. And I've also been meditating a bit and one of those meditations was a bit of a sort of half nap. It was like a sort of semi-quasi nap where I fall into the sleep state, but I also come out very quickly, which if you've done much meditation before, you would know can really warp your sense of time. Like there's a lot of big time warps when you have those ins and outs with sleeping and meditation. So it's six o'clock. I can see the clock, I can see the clock, but it feels like it's been a long day and it feels like there's still a long way to go. I've also got a lot of things I need to do, so we'll see, we'll see what happens, we'll see how I feel. And so I guess the small talk is I don't know how long this day is. And maybe just see, like, let's look at this, let's crack into the meat of our topic. What does it mean to not know? How many kinds of not knowing? Have you ever heard these words said, I don't know? What what is exactly does that mean? What exactly is going on there? And of course, it's not just saying the words, but actually not knowing. So you can not know without saying it. And that really gets us into the meat of us. So Let's look at this. Let's have some levels that I've got. So I guess I guess levels is not really the right word for it as well. I guess it's more it's more like types of not knowing. It's not as though any of these are better or worse or above or beyond or before or after. It's that they're types. So I, re- I really should have called this conversation seven types of not knowing. And who knows, maybe I will. I haven't put the title in yet. But either way, it is what it is. It's seven things or variations or dynamics with not knowing. And I don't even know if it's seven. I think my list is a bit longer than seven. But firstly, 
there is the people that don't know, but they think they know. This is the most annoying, right? These are the ones that talk the most. These are the ones that give the answers. These are the ones that think highly of themselves when they rather shouldn't. These are the people that sort of lack a kind of humility. And, of course, most of the time I've found that when people don't know but think they know, there's no way to really get through to them. There's no way to really explain it. And it can be quite shocking. It can be quite jarring. It can be even taken as a little bit insulting to explain something because, really, with knowledge... Your identity is tied up in it. Your sense of self is tied up in it. Your ego is tied up in your knowledge. Your intelligence is all tied up into your ego. So, and vice versa, of course. So, the first kind of not knowing is the people that don't know, but they think they know. Now, be careful with this. Because, as you'll see with other kinds of not knowing... It can't be always too obvious that someone doesn't know when they don't know. That it, doesn't, it doesn't appear to be always so obvious that they don't know when they think they know or when they're sort of projecting out this thing from them. So always reserve your judgments. Always hold your judgments. And in my experience... So often when I come across someone who doesn't know but think they know, I actually hold my tongue and I actually say, well, maybe there is something to learn from this person. Maybe they are trying to get something across and maybe I shouldn't be too quick to assume that my answer to the situation or the question or whatever it is that's going on is better than theirs. It might just be that they have a different explanation to you. So don't be too quick to judge. So the second kind of not knowing, and I think by the time I tell you this, you'll start to see where I'm going with this idea, is those that don't know and they don't say anything. So there's those that don't know, and do say something, or think they know, and those that don't know, and don't say anything. So there are people who are quiet, they don't contribute to the conversation, they don't really say much, they don't have much to think about what's going on, and they, quite simply, don't know. Now, of course, there is an advantage to this, because if you don't know and you don't say anything, you're not going to look like an idiot. It's like that old saying, it's better to be quiet and thought of as ignorant than to open your mouth and prove it, or whatever the saying goes, whatever the saying is to those effects of that idea. So, those that don't know and don't say anything. The third kind is those that know they don't know, but have a lot of intricate things to say. 
So these are those people who are aware of their ignorance. They're aware that this thing of a lapse in knowledge or a lapse in awareness is a part of their makeup. They've actually accounted for their own ignorance. They've accounted for their own lack of something. And yet also still decide to go ahead with saying something. Now, there's another category we'll get to in a second, which is similar to this. But in this third category of those that know they don't know, but have a lot of intricate things to say, they can actually offer something because they're actually the ones that are sort of demonstrating a way through this sort of tightrope between ignorance and understanding. And that's a path. That's a process. That's a almost like a game. That's something we all have to do. Now, it is a tricky game because you're going to you're going to flip up sometimes. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have things go wrong. And how they step that path, how they become intricate is really a way around that. And the intricacy is really like, well, how do we balance our ignorance and our knowledge? And how do we do it in a way that's that's interesting, that's detailed, that's actually accounting for things that are difficult to account for, like lapses in knowledge and blind spots. So some people know they don't know, but they can still manage to speak in a certain way. They can still come up with intricate ideas that contend with that fundamentally. And they're worth listening to. There's still something in that. Someone with humility and yet the guts to still go ahead knowing their own ignorance is someone, well, who has a bit more depth than maybe the first kind that we've spoken about. So the fourth kind is those that know they don't say Sorry, no, they don't know and don't say anything. So that's different to those that know they don't know and have intricate things to say. These are those that are somehow more nested in their ignorance. They're more nested or the weight of their unawareness is sort of more present within them. And they've decided to say, well, Okay, it's better not to say anything. It's better to actually respect ignorance. It's actually better to deal with this big thing, which is unawareness, in a way that is quite extreme, which is to not say anything. Now, if you notice, this is similar to the second person that we have, which is those that don't know and don't say anything. That's different to someone who knows they don't know, and doesn't say anything. That's quite subtle, and maybe I'm not really sort of pushing the difference enough, but basically on the outside, it's that they don't say anything. These are the people that just don't talk. They don't contribute to the conversation. But the difference is how deep or how present their unawareness is within them? How much respect do they bring to their 
ignorance. How much respect do they bring to the things they can't know, the things they aren't aware of? And if that's not making sense right now, I think that'll become clear as we look at some of these others, particularly later on, a little bit further down the list. Now, the next one, I think it's number five, is less as a kind of type of person or an inner world structure and more of a kind of passing experience or an action or a kind of phrase. So this is, I don't know, as a confusion defense. And I've definitely been guilty of this. I've actually had to do a lot of work to bring myself to be aware of this and to really work with it and to actually stop doing it. And basically, how it works is you come up against something or something's brought to your attention which is hard for you to learn, particularly with self-knowledge, something to do with your spiritual development, your psychological development, your emotional development. It'll be a personality trait or a character trait or an action that you're doing or a flaw in your sort of worldview. And someone will be sort of in some certain way, in some certain circumstance, either in a contrived way, in an overt way, or in a subtle way, or in a sort of happenstance way, be bringing something. It's sort of it's sort of being like thrown in your face. It's like being confronted with, you know, maybe some family problem or some personality problem or some emotional problem or some trauma problem. And it's like being hit to you and you'll say, I don't know. You know, what? why is it that you're so angry at your father? Why is it that you yelled at your father when you were a child? Why is it that your father treated you this way? You know, if we're working with daddy issues, as an example, and if someone's pressing you, you might get into this confusion defense, which is where you say, I don't know. And what happens when you say that is there's this sort of cloud. It's sort of like this tangle. You sort of look back and forth. Now, from someone who can see this from the outside, which is what you need to learn to do, you can see that this I don't know, this confusion is a created tangle. It's a cloud that's created that is a defense. And in fact, in that situation, you do know. You actually do know. And that's what the therapist or the daddy issues person is trying to get you to. And they can probably, if they're any good, see it. They can see what's going on. And they can talk you through it. They can calmly do it. I mean, that's that's really the whole point of therapy, isn't it? It's to go into those issues without allowing you to sort of have those confusion defenses. But, I mean, therapy aside, it's used in all sorts of situations. It's used as defenses of looking bad within the community or just ego defenses or saving face and all the rest of it. So when you find yourself saying, I don't know, as a confusion defense, what you need to do is stop, tell yourself, actually, I do know, and I need to look at it in a calm way to see what the answer really is. And that can cause a 
a great breakthrough. You might end up saying something like, Well, I yelled at my dad because he let me down when I was a child. Or I yelled with my dad because he was overly controlling when I was a child. Or I yelled at my dad because I couldn't find him dependable. He didn't help me with the things I needed. And that's just some examples of the the daddy issue example that we've been talking about. So the next type, the next one, the next I don't know down the list is as a false humility. And this is a not wanting to show superiority. It's a kind of fear of greatness. And this happens when you're working with people and there's a certain set of roles that are defined. Now, when everyone has clear roles, then there's something about breaking the roles. There's something about going out. There's something about breaking rank or sort of going up the hierarchy. It's, it's risky. It's shaking the boat. It's, it's really just sort of changing the relations. Like we all feel comfortable in the relations we have and the roles that we have, like, I mean, after the initial period, I mean, usually when you're first in a group, it's like you're working that out and then things settle and you're sort of in your roles and people stay there. And if there's change, then it's gradual and it's slow and we all want to be comfortable with it and we all want to talk about it and it wants to be this sort of ceremonial thing when someone does change roles. So false humility when you're working in a team, when you're in close proximity to people actually doing something is understandable because your superiority takes something, takes a kind of guts. Like, say, for example, if it's just this small thing, you might not want to say that you know better. You might not want to be able to step up and just say, well, there's a better answer to this. Because you know, if not explicitly, then subconsciously, that as soon as you do that, as soon as you have a better answer than those around you, you're starting to step into a leadership role. So it's much easier to say, I don't know, as a false humility. And of course, you'll be walking around thinking, well, I do know better. Now, this can lead to all sorts of things. This can lead to a resentment. This can lead to an inferiority complex, which isn't right for you. It's a kind of sort of sadness that comes with not being able to express your full potential. So the answer is to actually step up and say you do know and not be afraid to step into a higher leadership role. It's not it's something that is like like wherever you're working or whatever team you're in, you should be able to feel comfortable with making that step through the ranks. And in fact, a really good team... Whoa, I can hear someone calling. I don't know if you can hear that. It might be the baby. It's a bit distracting, but that's all right. I wonder if the baby knows. Baby probably doesn't know. Which one? I wonder which one of these the baby doesn't know. Has the baby got a false sense of humility? But anyway, let's get back on track. Uh, I was saying... 
I don't know as a false humility. Now, in a team which is conscious and aware of this, they are in actu- they're actually encouraging this. They actually put leadership as a kind of forefront, like it's a kind of higher value. And in fact, when leadership is put as a higher value and everyone understands it, every single person in the team is a leader. That's what it looks like. Like this thing of leaders up the top and followers down the bottom, that's actually a kind of dysfunctional team. That's actually a kind of way of working which is inefficient. The best team, the best groups work when everyone is leading. Everyone is just sort of pushing forward with the right thing. And everyone's aware of this, so they know that when someone knows better than them, they can let them move forward. They can pick it up and run with it. There's a kind of collaboration. There's a work that goes on together. That's, yeah, that's collaboration. So, the next level or type of not knowing is not knowing as a path. So, this comes back a little bit to what we were talking about before with people who don't know and don't say anything and the people that know they don't know and don't say anything. It's a subtle difference in that case, but when not knowing is a path, you actually make it a priority to not know something. You actually make it a kind of attitude of going into a situation or an activity or a work or a knowledge and finding what it is that's missing, what it is that you are unaware of. You actually put your ignorance first. And we also call this the path of the mystic. And basically what the mystic is doing is working with awareness. The mystic understands that awareness is king. Awareness is the most important thing. Awareness is the thing that leads to all sorts of openings and understandings and experiences. So, to do this, to actually work with this, the mystic says, well, how do I increase my awareness? And the answer is, of course, to decrease unawareness. So they put their unawareness as the thing they work with. They even identify with their unawareness. Now, this is different to false humility. This is where they say, I don't know, in a very different way. They're doing this as a path. They're doing this as a practice. They're doing this as something that they work with in relation to others. So don't think that a mystic can't actually stand up and say in certain situations that they do know better. They can't, it's not as though they can't give an answer to something which is better than others if they know it. But that's not knowing as a path. That's identifying with unawareness to actually decrease unawareness. So the next one on my list is not knowing as a state. Now, when we talk about knowing, 
basically how we've spoken about it thus far is basically do you have something to say about the situation what are your thoughts what are your words what is it that you can express and articulate with the sounds of your mouth about the situation now knowing as knowledge and the mind and words is really one type of knowledge when we get to not knowing as a state we actually have to go beyond the mind we have to go beyond thought and speaking so not knowing as a state is where you don't say anything about it because there literally is no way to say something about it so it's not as though you can't say something about it because you don't have the right words and you haven't thought about it enough and you need to sort of get better language or get better descriptive words or to process it cognitively no it's actually that not knowing as a state is when there is no way to express it in knowledge you're touching something or experiencing something that actually can't be put into words it can't translate into the mind because it's beyond the mind now if you think about it this happens all the time it's actually not that common and it's not that rare everyone has experiences of not knowing as a state it might be something of extreme beauty or it might be a moment of awe or it might be a moment of silence or a moment of bliss or a moment of deep relaxation let's let's take the example of relaxation you might notice that say you're say we make you really relaxed like we give you a mud bath or something maybe you don't like mud baths but maybe something else if you don't but mud mud baths are generally thought to be you know pretty pretty relaxing and we put some incense on and we give you a massage and we do all of it now if i'm to walk in in the middle of your mud bath or your massage you're going to want to say something to express about ah i feel so relaxed or like ah this is so nice and what you might notice if you're sensitive to this is that you don't really want to say anything about it and the words don't quite cut it you might say something like oh you don't understand i really can't express how relaxed i am and it sort of ruins the moment it sort of takes away from it because now you've got this person who doesn't understand and can't really fathom how relaxed you are and of course when you pull someone else into it well then there's more complexes and you've got someone else to consider but that hints at this thing which is a state of not knowing it's not knowing as being unable to put something into words and really this goes even further because it's not just those smaller states it's not a it's not just a matter of those subtle states but it's also those higher states it's the states of being in the cosmos it's the state of flowing around the nebulous stars 
It's the state of being in infinity. It's the state of dissolving your whole life. It's the state of holding the whole world in the palm of your hands. So not knowing as a state has many varieties, has many forms. And of course, if you do state training, well, you can have these, you can have these experiences more often. And it is sort of one of those things that you struggle with if you're at a certain point in your meditation and your spiritual practice, which is, well, well, how do I express it? You know, you can you can make this a sort of part of your demeanor, which is, oh, oh, you don't understand, or oh, I can't express how I feel, or no words can describe it. You know, this this sort of thing between not knowing and trying to explain explain it in words can be like a real struggle, right? But if you understand it as a state, then you can become at peace with it. You can actually be okay. And therefore, you can actually give up. <laughs> you can give up the impossible, which is trying to put into words what can't be put into words. Now, the other funny thing is states of not knowing or these sort of higher states actually have a literature to them. So people have done work, scholarly work, and also traditional work, like there's a sort of religious tradition to it, as to actually try and bridge this. So some people have created this way to bridge the not knowing with words. And, <laughs> well, you can create your own systems or follow someone's system or follow someone's structure of consciousness or blueprint of consciousness. And there's many of those. There's many of those out there. And we've spoken about them in the past. But that would be like, okay, so we know we can't say anything about it. But if we could, then what would we say? Or like, we know we can't say anything about it, really. But what words can we do that would set someone up to make them more likely to sense those things or to find those things or to go beyond or to slip into a state of not knowing. So, yeah, it's rich, it's complex, it's vast, there's a lot out there. But understand that not knowing is a state beyond the mind. And now I sort of come to my last point that I have so far, which is not knowing as experiencing. So this isn't really a type or a kind. It's it's sort of like the difference between knowing versus experiencing. And this is related to not knowing as a state. Now, when you have the right answers, but you haven't done it yourself, you haven't lived it yourself, that means you don't know it. So here we're getting into a sort of nitty-gritty definition of the word knowing because it's possible to know the right answers and to not have the experience. And I would wager that you don't really know it if that's the case. Like I'm a phenomenologic phenomenologist. Phenomenal is that a word? Phenomenologicalist. 
<laughs> I don't know if that's a word, but we should make it a word. A phenomenologicalist. <laughs> I'm all about the phenomenon. I'm all about the direct, immediate experience. So think of it. Just like, let's unpack this. You can give the correct answer. You can give the right textbook answer. You can read the right book on something. You can read the best book, the most outstanding book. You can know the most cutting-edge research, the most refined research, and yet not experience it yourself. And really, like the whole academic world or the sort of knowledge world, the a priori life through literature and life through intelligent mind is aware of this thing, which is, well, how do we know what we know? Like there's an epistemological component to the academic world, right? Epistemology is something that the academics have to deal with. They have to work with. And broadly speaking, it would be the answer. Well, the answer to how do we know what we know is, well, you don't know what you know Someone else knows better, so you need to read the book that they've written. That's basically all academic knowledge. It's you are someone who is late to the conversation. People have done much more research than you. People have done much more thinking than you. People have done much more reading than you. And in so many ways, all these other greats know more than you. So the best thing you can do is copy from them, find from them, use their answers, use their textbooks, use their thoughts, use their ideas. That's the basic general vibe of academia. It's all about, well, where did you get that idea from? It's always looking for this authority. Like the whole thing of academia is like, what's your quote? Who did you, who did you read that from? What book was that written in? Right, the ultimate, the ultimate academic book is just continuous quotes from other places. Now, of course, of course, we don't want to do away with this. I don't mean to undermine it. I don't mean to shut that down or anything, because of course, many people do know more than us. Many people have written and thought and researched so much more than us, and written in the books. And we do need to read those books. That's very important. But the difference here is between knowing versus experiencing. So have you experienced it? Have you done it yourself? What memory comes to mind for you? What sensations in your body come to mind for you? When you close your eyes... Can you picture what it's exactly like? These sorts of questions get at experiencing. These are personal questions. These are always completely like in the individual, like totally in the individual. And I believe the academics, well, they need to swing more the other way. Don't get me wrong. It's not like... Like, like there's something in the hippie, right? Because the hippie is 
someone who just follows their feeling and they're all about themselves, you know, like sleep in, you know, you got your girlfriend, you smoke something, you go traveling, you want to find something nice, you want to experience the world, you want to find different cultures, you go surfing, you go swimming, you cook nice food. You know, this is this is sort of like the opposite of the the academic sort of person who's always in the library, stuck in the library, right? So if we can have the the hippie on one side and the, and the the bookworm or the the library nerd on the other, it's like, well, both of them are missing something. Both of them don't know something. Both of them haven't experienced something. And both of them can learn from each other, right? The hippie, what you'll find eventually is that actually they do want to pick up a book on philosophy or psychology. Like if that hippie is really a seeker, if they're really wanting to open to the world, well, that means opening to academia and a priori knowledge. And the academic, well, if they're really searching, if they're really going into it, eventually they'll see that a book is not going to teach them the taste of the air. It's not going to teach them healthy living. It's not going to teach them the smell of flowers. It's not going to teach them what it's like to surf. Now, (laughs) you might say, well, there are books written on how to surf or how to appreciate flowers, right? (laughs) So it's it's sort of the the conversation collapses in on itself like all do after so many... sort of backs and forths but i think i think you get what i'm saying right you we've got the the academic on one side and the hippie on the other and never the twain shall meet and yet both of them need to know something from each other so that's the difference between knowing versus experiencing now you might say with all this what do people know? Do people ever know anything? Like, does anyone ever know anything? And the answer is yes. Knowledge is nested within people. Knowledge is nested within minds. And that's why we talk. That's why we communicate. That's why we write books. Because there is something so important in knowledge. And yet, of course, also, always, with all of these... There is a great ignorance. And we're all in ignorance. We all have a dark side. We all have a shortfalling. Because we're so much smaller than the world. So, understand these dynamics. Understand these levels. And I guarantee that at different times, all of these will come up. You're going to have to contend with all of these levels in different contexts. So... Know when you are being any of these types, which is those that don't know but think they know, those that don't know and don't say anything, those that know they don't know but have a lot of intricate things to say, those that know they don't know and don't say anything, I don't know as a confusion defense. I don't know as a false humility. Not knowing as a path or the path of the mystic. Not knowing as a state. 
and knowing versus experiencing. So you'll see with each of these that you might think, okay, I can avoid them all by doing the opposite of them, right? Because if I don't know, but I think I know, well, then that just means everything that I think I know, I will say, I don't know. But therein lies the problem (laughs) because then you've fallen into number three, which is, oh, sorry, number, I think it's number five or number six, which, whichever the one is that is a false humility or not wanting to show superiority because there are things you know, <laughs> right? So don't, don't take that mistake of just saying, well, I can avoid all of these just by, <laughs> just by, just by doing the opposite because that would mean that you're actually saying, well, how do you know better? How do you know you don't know? <laughs> and then, of course, we get into a very, very funny, vicious cycle. And and I believe, I believe we could even come up with a little bit of a skip, a little bit of a sort of dr- comedy drama of these. Like I'm getting this image now that these two guys, these two guys sitting at the bar, and and what are they saying? One of them saying something like, "Well, how do you know that?" And the other says, well, I don't know that I know that. I don't know how. And another might say, well, well, how do you know you don't know how? And the other says, well, I know I don't know how, but I don't know how I don't know how, how I don't know. And the other says, well, how do you know that? And he says, well, I know I don't know how, but I know how that I don't know how, how I know I don't know how, how I don't know how. <laughs> and you can see this is this is the the back and forth this is the ever receding constant like you're stuck in a circle then so watch out for that one and well what happens when you're stuck in a circle well it means your synaptic firings have a pathway through your neurons which is on repeat and the solution to that is to meditate and failing that you can read books because that will open your mind. That will reveal your ignorance to you. So that's seven levels of not knowing. We didn't get to levels of not needing. Maybe we will have that in another conversation in another day. It'll be a sort of related episode to this one, but different, very different, but structurally, cognitively, structurally, it's very similar to not knowing is not needing. Do you know what you don't need? Can you think of anything you don't need? Maybe that can be a question to contemplate for our next conversation. I hope you're having a beautiful day. I hope you're doing the things that are good for you. So thank you very much for tuning in. My name is Dosta. We'll be back very soon with more. And that's all I have to say for now.